I'm going to read the passage, and this is uh, Paul's heart and testimony for knowing Christ. Philippians 3, verses 12 through 16 is our paragraph and our focus for our attention this morning. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward for what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Uh, this, this week... I had the wonderful privilege of clocking my uh, 41st birthday, and, you know, that's of no uh, celebrative uh, moment for us. I mean, you know, people clapped first hour. I don't know if that's a clapping thing or sort of a, you know, sobering thing. I think I've, I've crossed the threshold of the 40 factor, and I'm into the 40s. And, uh, you know, I don't really feel any different, but I, I feel like uh, I'm 41 now. It's dawning on me. So, but good things come of birthdays, especially when you have six kids. With six kids, you don't really send them out to all buy presents for you because all of a sudden you've had a very expensive birthday, even if you have small presents spread across six people. So they all want to do something, so they began by making me construction paper cards, and I kind of enjoyed those. I haven't had a pop-up card in a long time, but my kids creatively made pop-up cards. One of them created a ninja face with a little slot, and so I'm seeing eyes on the back of it and, you know, coming through the ninja mask, and it says, you know, Dad, you're like like a ninja to me. Not sure exactly what that means, but then he, you know, goes on to say, but your breath stinks, and so here's some breath mints for your birthday. You know, these are, these are wonderful moments for being 41, having transparent, honest moments with your children. And, uh, but, you know, I asked my wife for a trip to Hawaii and didn't get that, so uh, she gave me something else that I asked for. I got plan B. And what she gave me was very precious to me. And it might not sound too spectacular to you, but in the context of Philippians 3 and knowing God, it was spectacular to me, and I have it with me. It's very simple, and it's a very slimline um, prayer journal. And uh, you say, okay, uh, she got off easy. No, um, I, I need to journal my way into my relationship with the Lord. I do. Um, I have the kind of mind that... You know, it goes in a lot of different directions, and it's um, kind of thinking on a lot of things at, a lot of, at, at, at the same time. And so for me, for all of my spiritual life, journaling prayers has been the most important spiritual discipline apart from studying Scripture. Probably, you know, one and the other, back and forth. Studying Scripture and then journaling through prayers has meant the world to me. Uh, I do pray just out loud, extemporaneous prayers. I pray in the car sometimes. I pray as I'm going. I try to pray without ceasing as life hits me, as I would encourage you to do as well. But journaling has really helped me to pray. And you might say, well, that sounds academic or like you're making it into a homework assignment. Is that relationship with the Lord? I believe journaling to the Lord is an incredible spiritual discipline to try and practice and perhaps for you to pursue because journaling prayers slows you down as you pray. The discipline of writing your way clear, whether you read it again or not, 
that clarifying process of writing what you, what's on your heart to the Lord is a wonderful spiritual experience and discipline and clarification as you clarify what you're actually doing when you're praying. And sometimes it's fun to look back and see how the Lord has answered those prayers as you date those pages. But for me, it helps. And that's what I asked for. I said, Judy, I, I need a journal because I want to pursue Christ like Paul is pursuing Christ as we see displayed in his testimony in Philippians 3, and entering into a discipline of knowing Christ is sweet to me. I want to show, show you this morning how Paul pursued Christ. I do. He puts himself on the line here in Philippians 3. Look at verse 17. I didn't read it yet, but look at verse 17. He says, brothers, join in imitating me. Paul wants the church, and this church in particular, to imitate his spiritual life. You're going to, I mean, I just read this, but we'll look at it in more detail. He's not saying he's the paragon of all spiritual virtue. He's the highest and greatest Christian of all time. He would never want to be called that. A lot of people do, but he wouldn't have wanted that accolade. He's just saying, listen, I'm a spiritual leader, and I want you, as, as far as I'm pursuing Christ, I want that to affect your life. And so that's what he's done here. He's put his testimony on the pages of Scripture in terms of how to pursue knowing Jesus. And one of the ways I've pursued him is journaling. And I, I just want to reference this. You know, where, where is journaling in Scripture? Well, when you read the epistles, the letters in the New Testament, typically chapter 1 is, at least a portion of it, is a journaled prayer. It's written down. And so that kind of pursuit was Pauline. But I want to show you what drives his prayer life, what drives his spiritual discipline. It's simply this. It's a passion to know Jesus, his Savior. Paul was not the most, or at least he didn't call himself, the most disciplined person in the universe. He did say we're supposed to discipline ourselves for godliness. But here's a big idea of this text as we launch in. Discipline in and of itself, raw discipline, will not get you closer to Jesus. If discipline got you closest to Jesus, then the most spiritual people in the world would be, what, Christian doctors, Christian athletes, Christian coaches, <laughs> disciplined people, Christian maestros, you know, Christian whatever, that it, it's just discipline in and of itself does not get you to the Lord. It's passion for Christ as your Savior that gets you close to the Lord. That's what drives the passion to know Christ, the pursuit of Christ. So how do we get that passion? Well, what Paul is doing in this text is he's talking about his salvation testimony. And his testimony is what drives his passion for the Lord. It's not just raw discipline. It's not just that he was a man who prayed all the time or a man who wrote prayers out all the time. He's not just a person who evangelized all the time and he did a bunch of stuff that made him a strong, intimate Christian with the Lord. That's not what did it. It's that he never got over his testimony. He knew his salvation backwards and forward. And salvation, let me just say it this way, and we're going to look at it in the text. It really is a past, a present, and a future event in your life. It is. It's past in terms of you've been saved from the penalty of sin. In Romans 8, it says, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Colossians says that the sin debt has been canceled by the cross. 
You no longer are guilty. You are justified. Romans 5.1, you stand in grace. So the penalty is wiped away. Do you believe that? So in the past, the penalty of sin is gone. In the present, salvation applied to you means the power of dominating sin in your life is gone. The power of sin is undone in your life. Now, what do I mean by that? We still have the sinful hangover, yes. We still live in our flesh. We still have the sinful effects in our humanness that are alive and well in us. We still are tempted by our sinful hearts. But you know what? The dominion of sin is broken, Romans chapter 6. It is. You no longer have sin on the throne of your life. Christ is on the throne of your life. You're no longer, as Romans 5 puts it, you're no longer on the he- under the headship of Adam, which represents the fall and sin. You are now under a new head, and that head is Christ. It's Romans 5, Romans 5 and 6. And then now you have s- salvation, and what does it save you from in the future? It saves you from the presence of sin in the future. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah's vision of heaven is Christ and how the angels are declaring he is thrice or three times holy. There is no sin in heaven. There's no sin, sickness, death, demons are dying in heaven. Heaven is clean and pure and holy and perfect. And we're saved from the presence of sin. So in the past, we're saved from the penalty of sin. In the present, we're saved from the power of sin. And in the future, we are saved from the presence of sin. And Paul in this passage is applying all three aspects through these verses to spawn, to spark, to press in his own life a pursuit of Christ. Understanding the full-orbed sense of your salvation will drive you in intimacy to the Lord. Look at this. For instance, in the past, we we found verses 5 and 6. He's talking about how he used to ramp himself up with all kinds of inherited and achieved um, external goals in his life. All kinds of religious Phariseeism is what he was propping up to say, I'm right with God. What did he call that? He called it scubalon. He called it dung. He called it junk. He called it refuse. He called it garbage. He said, I throw all of that out. That was hypocrisy. That was condemning me, keeping me from God. That was what was in the past. And then in verse 7, he gets saved. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever gain. And so he's saying, look, I was converted. I saw all that as garbage. And then I counted Christ as gain in my life. That was conversion. So you have the past. And then you have this present pursuit of holiness in verses 10 and 11. It's where he says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That's present salvation. That's the pursuit of holiness. And then you have the future, which is verses 12 and following. He hasn't obtained this yet. He presses on to make it his own. What does he want to press for here? He wants to press for intimacy with Christ. That's what this passage is all about. How do you know Christ? By ramped up discipline? By, by what you inherit? You were born into a Christian family? No. You know Christ by being passionate to know him and you understand your salvation. You understand it in terms of the past, the present, and then the future. Look down at verse 14. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
Paul's passion to know Christ, even behind bars, was a resurrection passion. He wanted to know Christ now, and he wanted to know Christ in the future because he'd been saved in the past. Past, present, and future. You see it in verse 12, past, present, and future. In the past, he says, not that I've already obtained this. I didn't obtain it. I, 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 didn't, I haven't gotten there yet. I was saved at a point in time. But, and then he says this, or am already perfect. Presently, I'm not perfect yet. He says, but for the future, I press on to make it my own. Past, present, and future. All right. Now, let's take this at a slower pace. We're going to look at verses 12, and we may get to 16, probably not. But we're going to look at 12 and, and following. We're going to look at knowing Christ. How do we do that? How do you know Jesus Christ? Well, beginning with verse 12. You know Christ, and it begins with eternal security. That's verse 12. Paul knew he was eternally secured. He begins by saying, not that I have already obtained this. What, is, what does that mean? What is the this here? Well, what we're talking about is um, perfect fellowship with Christ. Some people look at this as, you know, the this in that passage as perfect holiness or sanctification. That wasn't what Paul's talking about. The immediate context is verses 10 and 11. He wants to know Christ. He wants to know Christ. He's just talked about how he, he can't know Christ through religious obedience. So he's saying, I haven't obtained the, the, the sine qua non, the, the best perfect relationship with Christ yet. I haven't. I'm 30 years in the Lord, but I haven't gotten there fully yet. That's what he's saying. Or am already perfect. Now, what's he doing here? He's being very transparent. Paul is not a religious cult leader. Anyone who says, look, I have obtained it. I've seen Christ in a unique way. I'm putting myself on a higher plane than everybody else. You see this a lot in health and wealth, name it, claim it, gospel ministries quote-unquote gospel ministries where people say, you know, look, I'm this awesome, you know, godlike person. Follow me and you can be godlike if you follow me. That's a pervasive religion on TV and other places and in churches around. That's not what Paul is doing. He's doing the exact opposite, saying, look, I'm a fellow sinner saved by grace like you and I haven't gotten there yet. I want to know Christ and I'm pursuing him. So imitate me to the, to the degree that I'm pursuing him. He says, I'm not already perfect. The word perfect here is um, from the word telos, which means the end. I haven't gotten to the end state yet. Um, he could be using this as a play on words because remember, false teachers were threatening the church saying, look, if you'll just, as a Gentile, if you'll just get circumcised, if you'll just follow the law like a Jew, then you can be a real Christian. And so Paul's going, no. Let's, let's take perfectionism off the table. This is not about perfectionism. I mean, you want to you stifle your Christian life and depress your spiritual growth? Get hung up with perfectionism. Believe that you've got to be perfect in this life and you won't grow. That's what Paul is doing. He's undoing that. Don't you want the yoke off? He's taking the yoke off saying, look, the Christianity and growth is about relationship with Christ. That's the measuring stick, not do's and don'ts. It's knowing the Lord. And so he just takes that off. He says, I'm not perfect. We're not talking about a, are you circumcised or not yet category thing. It's undoing that. Hasn't obtained it. It's all about knowing him. Beware the legalist. 
So, eternal security, first of all, it guards against perfectionism. And secondly, eternal security inspires passion. This is where eternal security comes into this verse. He says, but I press on to make it, that's knowledge with Christ, relationship with Christ, to make it my own. Because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Now, again, he's using the language very well here. He says, look, I want to make my relationship as, as good and as rich and as deep and as personal as possible. And so I'm pursuing Christ. Why? Because he first pursued me. I'm grabbing, I'm, I'm, the word press is dioko. It, it's actually a word that's used negatively in scripture for persecute. I'm aggressively going after Christ because he aggressively, aggressively went for me. Uh, that word press, just look back here again. To press on, it's dioko. It's the exact same word he used um, in 1 Corinthians 15 when he said, I was a persecutor of the church. Acts 9 verse 4 is where the Lord called Paul out and said, why are you persecuting me? Why are you pressing on me as you persecute the church? You know, John the Baptist in Matthew eleven twelve 12 said that Christians take heaven by violence. There's an aggressive nature to spiritual growth. Mark 2, 4, um, the men who were on the roof who were saying, I got to get my friend, my buddy, my paralyzed friend down to Jesus. I mean, a lot of times in the felt board Bible story, you know, it's kind of like, well, you know, you take the roof off. And no, that, I mean, imagine, let's just imagine for a second, the roof is coming open, okay? Somebody's ripping the roof open. You say, well, they can't, you know, this was, these were thatched roofs. Yeah, that was the technology back then. We got stuff that can blast through the roof right now. Right? Somebody could, you know, light their C4, boom, here they are. I mean, that, this didn't fit nicely into the narrative story. You know, church stops and, and the person's there and something's going to happen. That's aggressive spiritual life. That's go for it in the Christian life type stuff. Matthew 5, 6, this is a blessed place to be. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is what Paul's all about. He's shackled, he's behind, you know, sort of house arrest, metaphorically behind bars, but he is thrilled in his Christian pursuit of God. He wants to pursue Christ, and he's free in that way. So, what inspires this kind of passion? It's realizing that God started it. This is where eternal security comes in, because Christ Jesus, look at verse 12, has made me his own. Who made Paul a Christian? Did Paul make himself a Christian, or did Jesus make Paul a Christian. Who made you a Christian? Jesus did. Jesus saved you. We're the drowning victim, and Jesus grabs you out, right? I mean, I, we, my little boys swim a lot uh, at the Alaska Club, and Carson's learning to swim, and he's, you know, he's on the side of the pool, and Owen thinks he can swim. So Owen dives in the pool, and he can't swim and get all the way to the side yet. And so what does Carson do? Well, Carson, he doesn't grab his arm to get him out. He grabs him by the throat and pulls him out and puts him on the side of the pool. Very effective way of saving Owen from drowning. I was right there, but anyway, fun to watch brothers help brothers. It's a great picture of what Christ did for you. You were going that direction, headed toward hell, filled in your heart with lust, sin, and pleasure, blinded to the light, and then like Paul at Damascus, he blinded Paul with his light and said, you're not perfect, I'm perfect. Why are you persecuting me as you persecute the church? And he collared Paul and said, you are now a Christian. 
Now, it could be easy to say, well, that's going to stifle my spiritual growth. If God's the one who saves people, why evangelize? If God's the one who saved me and guarantees heaven, why try to grow? Well, the Christian life is mysterious like that. It actually inspires us. This doctrine that God saved you and he did all the work and you responded to it is actually the confidence builder to spiritually grow. If it was all up to us to, to save people or to save ourselves or to grow ourselves, we'd get discouraged and stop. But when you grasp the fact that God did it in the past, he's given you the power to grow in the, in the present, and he's guaranteeing the future, and it's not discipline-driven, it's passion and faith-driven, then you get busy for the Lord. You get to know the Lord because you know that you're going to win in the end. All right, let me ask a question. Who would be willing to admit that they watched the whole Super Bowl a couple weeks ago? All right, nobody. Anyway, but I know that you all did. Anyway, because you watched the commercials. The, the Super Bowl was, what, about four and a half hours long because three-quarters of the way through in the Harbaugh Brother Bowl, John versus Jim Bowl, Ravens versus 49ers Bowl, uh, you know, the lights went out. Some 49ers fan short-circuited the Superdome, right? Pulled the plug and boom, it shuts down. And so for the next 90 minutes or so, the teams get, you know, cold. The quarterbacks, you know, haven't touched the ball for a long time. And everybody began to fill up the sideline chatter because they had nothing to say after about 45 minutes. So back to you. Hey, back to you. What are you going to say now? Well, they're cold and probably the 49ers are going to come back. And guess what? They did. They came back. But in my mind, and I'm not, you know, clairvoyant with sports or anything like that, but I did think, you know, the Ravens are probably going to win because they're in the lead. And it's a lot easier to keep a lead than to overtake someone with the lead. And what this doctrine does is it teaches the Christian that you're in the lead, that your victory actually is guaranteed. You are going to be raised with Christ. You're going to know him in perfect knowledge. The sin barrier is going to be brought down and so you know him more with that anticipation in the future you know him now thinking future you know you're going to win the trophy is secure and so you press now and you run harder isn't it easier to run harder when you're playing sports or you're, you're in an activity to pursue some pursue something with greater passion when you know that man you're probably going to win you're not fighting through the discouragement you're fighting as a victor and that's what Paul's doing. He's not discouraged under arrest. He's pursuing Christ with all the more passion because he's clear that all he has is Christ now and in the future. It's the way to be. So your past salvation, it promotes present growth, but it also, you press toward him because you know you are his. It's the opposite of being lazy. So knowing Christ, it begins with eternal security, and then knowing Christ continues when you let go of your past. This is a very key component to the Christian life, because I know that a lot of people, as I was, especially in the early years of my Christian development, I was hung up on past sins in my life that suffocated my spiritual growth. You ever been there? Perhaps you're there now. Hey, I want to grow, but, 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 but this happened. I want to pursue Christ, but, oh, you know, there's this discouragement bomb that enters my heart. This happened in my life. I did this. I did that. I let that happen. And so I'm spiraling. So I'm just going to hang on and not really pursue Christ with passion. 
Paul wants to, again, unyoke that person and will with these words, if believed. He says, brothers, verse 13, I do not consider that I have made it my own. I haven't gotten there yet with Christ. But one thing I do, look at these words, forgetting what lies behind. You know what you're called to do to grow as a Christian? Forget. You need to gain some spiritual amnesia. Now, does God forget our sins? Well, I'm not ready to accuse God of not being omniscient. He's all-knowing. He does bury them, and he puts them under a category where he um, sees them as forgiven. And in that sense, they are forgotten because they're not applied to our account anymore. We're not accused by them anymore. He rebuffs the accusation of the devil, where the devil is constantly accusing us before the throne of God against us. So there's no condemnation towards us, and in that sense, he forgets. Do you forget sins that were done against you? Well, some of them in our humanness and our finitude, but a lot of them we remember. So how are we supposed to apply forgetting about other people's sins? Well, we're supposed to forgive. And when you freely forgive people, love fills the void there and you let things go and you don't hold things against people anymore and you don't bring them back up to them anymore. That's when it's forgiven and in that sense it's forgotten practically. But the problem is, is you have to forget your own sins. You've got to do that for your own life if you're going to grow. Is that hard? It's very hard because you know your own guilt. As you grow in the Lord, what do you become more aware of? You become more aware of how holy God really is. You become more aware of how disgusting your sins really were. You become aware of how much grace you really need. And it becomes difficult sometimes to unloose yourself or loose yourself from your sins. Unshackle yourself from the burdens of what's happened. A lot of us are bitter about our own sins or about things that have been done to us. Or we're despairing or we're doubting or we're even working through categories like bereavement where we're just suffocated in our own spiraling situation and we can't pierce the void. We can't grow or we think we can't. Forget what lies behind let me give you some categories on the other hand that we cling to sometimes that also need to be forgotten what about achievements your achievements knowing christ continues when you let go of your past category number one your achievements let's talk about your religious achievements this is where you've done something and you think that you've gained spiritual ground and you look back and you go you know i know i'm not great today but whoa did i give a lot at that point at that juncture Financially or physically, I served, I, I was part of something, I went here, I did this, I said that, I read this, I participated here, so I must be all right. It's religion. Yeah, it happened. And some of what happens in your past spiritually is actually not just a religious achievement, but it's a righteous achievement. I want to submit to you that our righteous achievements, hanging on to those things, could be the most difficult thing for you to get over and the most damaging part of your spiritual life you know i remember when i evangelized that person i led that person to christ i remember when my heart was really soft and pure i remember when i was praying consistently to the lord and really going for it for god and so i have pursued christ though i'm not right now you know what you got to forget not just your religious achievements but you got to forget your righteous achievements the good works you've done so far you got to kind of move past those i'm not saying that again 
you have some unrealistic, weird, strange amnesia where you don't remember things. Paul remembered a lot of things. Romans 16, he had his own natural missionary GPS built in where he's talking about where he's been and where he's going. He listed 30-some names in the church at Rome that he loved and was pursuing passionately. It's good to think about mountain peaks of the Christian life that the Lord has brought you through. I do that. But you can't rely on those things to grow. You've got to let them go. You've got to let it go. And a lot of times, I think we can't let go our, our faults and failures because we're also hanging on to our achievements, religious and righteous. You say, I, if I let go of those, those, those religious achievements, if I let go of those righteous deeds, then, you know, I, what, what do I have? And so that drags in the garbage of, well, you know, I, I, my good has to outweigh my bad. I, I did well at this point, and then I failed at this point, and I'm trying to figure it out, and, oh, I just get all garbled up, and I can't grow. Got to let go of both categories and move on. That's when you really are relying on grace. I got to tell you, I mean, I, I am just getting to know grace, real grace, where I'm more horrified by my sins on an attitudinal level on a heart level, on an idolatrous level, these idols of the heart. I'm just getting to grasp how sinful I am at another level. I mean, it'll just keep getting worse. As, and I'm beginning to understand how big God is, and he's so much bigger than any book I've ever read or except the Bible. He's incomprehensibly huge and holy. So what hope do I have? Well, you come to the end of yourself, And you begin to grasp grace, and you realize that I'm so sinful, and God is so holy, that all I have is grace. It's only relying upon what the Lord has done and is doing in my life. That's the only reason why I can grow. That's the only reason why I can open a prayer journal and begin to write a prayer. If you have a performance mindset in terms of what you've done good or what you've done bad, and you try to pray, game over. Superdome plug, pulled, you know, it's just everything shuts down. But if you go, no, I've got nothing, Lord, it's all you, and I've got to go by grace, then you just start to move and you start to pursue the Lord. That's what Paul is trying to bring the church to, a passionate mindset to know Christ now and in the future because of what he did in the past, not a performance mindset where you're ramping up discipline to know God. It's a big difference there. You know, there are two kinds of failures that happen in our past that often haunt us. Sins of commission and omission. Sins of commission are ones that we willingly commit. It's where the Bible says, don't do this, we do it anyway. You ever do those? You say, oh, God can't forgive me really for those. I mean, you know, here's the Ten Commandments. Don't do this, don't lie, cheat, steal, murder, commit adultery, don't do these things. Did it, failed, so now I'm out of the game. Sins of commission. If you think you're out of the game... That's a lie from Satan. You're not. Then there are sins of omission, where we omit ourselves from doing what's right. The Bible says, Jesus says, the whole law is summed up in love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Have you done that perfectly? No. You say, man, I haven't given perfectly. I haven't loved perfectly. I did this. I took myself out of the game here. I'm lazy, so why start? So instead of being haunted by sins of omission and sins of commission, you give them to God on the altar and say, Lord, it's only by your grace. I'm going to put one foot in front of the other and go ahead. That's it. That's it. We love the Lord by grace. 
past, present, and future grace. Okay? The gospel isn't just past. The penalty of sin, taken care of. The power of sin presently, taken care of. The presence of sin in the future, taken care of. And you got to grasp all of salvation on your behalf to grow. A lot of people like to be grumpy. You know, the grumpy, grumpy people. People are grumpy, and they say, you know, I like to be sad about sins of omission and commission. I like to spiral. I do. I want to be a grumpy person. I'm a grumpy. That's my personality. Don't you know where I was born? Do you know how I was raised? I'm grumpy, so I'm not going to grow. I know grumpy people. I can be grumpy. Uh, my wife would say I'm grumpy on Mondays a lot of times. I, I'm grumpy. I get that. But you know what? You can't stay grumpy. Elijah, he took on the prophets of Baal and Mount Carmel. He messed them up. I mean, God did it, but God used him in a powerful way. And then Jezebel, Ahab's wife, said, hey, send a servant, 1 Kings 19, I'm going to kill you for that. And Elijah went, I'm scared. I'm going to go sit under the juniper broom tree and be grumpy and be sad and spiral. You can't do that. Jonah, Jonah chapter 4. He's an evangelist, winning the Ninevites, winning the Gentiles, winning people that to us would have been like winning Osama bin Laden and the Taliban. You know, we're, we're winning them to Jesus. I don't want to do this. Oh, they came to Christ. Now what do I do? Ah, that's what, that's what Jonah was doing in chapter 4. We condemned Jonah, but that's what he was doing. Ah, I won Hitler to Christ. He's a brother. Ah, right? That's what he was doing. And that's grumpy. That is, that's the wrong way to be. We have to press for the gospel and move ahead. All right, so we know Christ in all these ways, and we're knowing Christ. And it continues when you live for the future. This is uh, verse 14, and it, it goes into verse 15. But look, look at verse 14. Actually, back up into verse 13. Verse 13, this is really where this concept begins. When we live for the future, 13b. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is runner's language. I've never been a runner. I've got kind of a bad knee and um, flat arches. My dad was a runner. He was a high hurdler, and he used to talk about how the one thing he would do to win a race, and he was pretty good, um, would be he won state for college. Um, you know, he did, did good work. He said, look, I'd relax, and I'd basically look at the finish line, and that's all I would look at, and I would race to the end. So you're basically making yourself mentally unaware of things except for the end state, the finish line, and that's the Christian's focus. It is. I was thinking about Usain Bolt and how, I guess it was 2008, the Olympics, he got a 9.69. And you remember the one thing that kind of tarnished that, you know, fastest man in the 100 meters ever of all time moment was right at the end he started to celebrate right before he crossed the finish line. It just kind of sullied it just a little bit for me. Putting the arms out, whatever. It's like, man, you could have gotten nanoseconds out of that, you know, and, and gotten even better. But who cares, right? Uh, the bottom line is you're supposed to look forward and keep going to when his shoelace was untied. You know, come on. Anyway, all right. On a more um, maybe classic illustration, I was reading Kent Hughes, who, uh, who wrote 
my favorite Philippians commentary, and he was talking about a race that he was aware of when he was a child. I don't know if he got to watch it on black and white TV or read it in Time uh, magazine with pictures, but it was the British Emperor Games um, in Vancouver, Canada. It's called the Miracle Mile. Anybody know about that? I'm looking over at um, any Canadian in the room that I know. Anyway, yeah, you know, okay, the Miracle Mile. This is Britisher Roger Bannister versus Australian John Landy. They were both in peak condition. Bannister was the first under four-minute miler, and they're, you know, they're going to race, and this is sort of the, the race of races where they are in the peak condition um, running you know, the 400 meters. And so as they are, no, I'm sorry, the, the mile. And so as they're going, it really is a four-lap race. And as the story goes, the Australian Landy said, I am, I am going to pour it on in the third lap. But Bannister, in his mind before the race, as his strategy, he was going to relax in the third lap and then in the fourth lap take off and take Landy over. So that was both of their mindsets going in. And so they came around the third lap, and Landy took off and sort of doubled a lead in front of Bannister. And Bannister was a smart guy. He ended up, he was a medical doctor, and he was a, an Oxford, a teacher at Oxford. So he knew um, that he needed to pour it on in that moment. And so he changed his strategy up and caught up with Landy. But he knew that he was still a couple meters behind him, and coming around the fourth lap, Right? The horn blows, and it's on, and it's you know, do or die at this moment. Bannister realized he wasn't going to be able to beat and overtake Landy unless something happened. And in the last few moments of the race, Landy did what runners should never do. He, he couldn't hear the footfalls of Bannister behind him anymore, and he looked back, lost his concentration, and Bannister blew by him and won the race by several strides, five yards to be exact. Pretty impressive victory. Now, what I'm not saying by this analogy is that as Christians, you can never look over your shoulder and never sort of lose focus. We're all going to lose focus in the Christian life. The Christian life should be lived in broader strokes than the seconds and nanoseconds of a race. But the analogy is striking and clear. We need to keep a focus on Christ. Listen, if you're not growing, you need to take a step today. Not next week or next year. Oh, I'll grow when this is over. I'll start growing. That No, journal now. Pray now. Seek the Lord now. It's an athletic decision. It is. It's the athlete's heart where you say, look, I'm going to jump into the deep end of the pool and I'm going to swim now. Don't let discouragements and past things and present victories hold you back from pursuing Christ now. You know, it's when you press, and this is one of our points here, you press for imperfect fellowship with Jesus now. And I said this already, the word press is dioko, it's pressing, it's moving ahead in discipline but discipline that's driven by a salvation mindset. What does it look like? Here, turn in your Bibles um, to 1 John real quickly. Uh, the writer of John echoes this sentiment exactly. 1 John 3. If you haven't read it in a while, it's a good thing to read these few verses ever so often. John 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God? And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Look at this. Beloved, we are God's children now. 
And what we will be has not yet appeared. You see present and future here? But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That's resurrection language. That's the future. Verse 1 is the past. Verse 2 is the present and the future. And then here's the effect. Verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You want to be pure in the Christian life? Look to the finish line. Look to Christ's return. Same thing in 1 Corinthians 13. There's a lot of controversy over the gifts in 1 Corinthians 13. It really is the love chapter, and Paul is calling the church to use its gifts, both apostolic in that age and present gifts in the church in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, 12 through 14, really. But the point is to have love in the body now and to pursue Christ in a way that you grow because you're looking to be with him face to face. Look at this, 1 Corinthians 13, 9. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. What's the perfect? When Jesus returns and we're in the resurrection state. When that happens, the sin barriers are removed. What does that look like? It looks like being mature. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. You become a man at the resurrection. Look at this. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. I know in part, and then I shall, I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. The mirror that we look into now, it's like a metal mirror. It gives us an imperfect reflection of Jesus Christ. You grow in Christ imperfectly now, and it's okay. We're not going to have perfect fellowship with Christ, but we press for it. Why? Because one day we're going to get diamond vision clarity with Christ and even more perfect clarity with Christ and when you see him face to face the sin barriers are removed and according to Romans 8:29 you will be glorified you live for that fellowship future you will have greater fellowship now not through raw discipline but through passionate faith-filled desire for Christ you know we just had a missionary that visited. He was here first hour. I think he's going back to um, the border town in Mexico, Sonora. His name's Brian Daigle. Did any of you here, Brian Daigle? I know you saw him last week, but he came Tuesday night to our PCT group. He also ministered on the men's group night and probably had um, several other venues throughout the week. He was a very busy missionary here making the rounds. I met with him at Taco King of all places, right? here. He, <laughs> that's some authentic Mexican comparatively, but you know, I like it. So we met there and uh, me and Pastor Leo Masters and, and talked. And Brian's a great guy. I mean, he, he's a guy who's passionate about the truth and the word of God, and three weeks out of his month, as a single man of God, this is the first Corinthians 7, I don't mean to condemn him to be single his whole life, but right, he, uh, but you know, as a single man, he is pouring his free time out for Jesus, and he's happy and satisfied in that, and I appreciate that so much, and part of his passion is to sleep on um, the couches of different, you know, pastors' homes and families and churches that he loves as he goes around and tries to build them up pastorally. 
And we were talking about it being a border town, just like Juarez. And Juarez is the border town um, to El Paso and Sonora to, you know, going right up to Arizona. These border town places are very hostile with the drug cartels. And the drug cartels are basically, you know, the Italian mafia of Mexico. And they're led by someone who will remain anonymous, but, but, the, uh, but the genesis of this person who basically built the drug cartel, the major one in Mexico, is that he is this brilliant mastermind person that took over for Esteban, Pablo Esteban, es- I'm sorry, help me, you all know, Escobar, okay, I couldn't see the CMI, yeah, see, why am I finishing this il- illustration, you guys know it. No, but look, there's no cocaine grown in Mexico. And so what is Mexico? Mexico is a drug highway to, to bring cocaine into our country so that our country that's buying this up by the handfuls to get a, what, what could be called a, a spiritual, you know, fake heavenly high here on earth. People want heaven. They just want it their own way through drug use. And so this guy is this mastermind leader, this drug lord in Mexico, and he is channeling all this drugs, all this drug use in and to and through our country. And so things happen because of that, especially in border towns. The churches are put on alert because they interact with the drug cartel lords that come and say, hey, we're not going to mess with you as a church because you're not really damaging us or getting in our way. But there's always the threat of it. And I'm saying to uh, Brian, hey, Brian, what does this do to the church? You know, are they under threat? Is somebody going to shoot the place up? And he says, no, they typically don't. But what happens is, is that if anyone defects from the drug cartel, then all of their family members get killed right if someone defects from the drug cartel or from the mexican mafia then they kill that person immediately but then they have to wipe out all of the rest of their family why men women children why because you don't want a child to grow up one day and strike revenge back on the cartel and so that's the thinking so they wipe everybody out and so that affects the church because suddenly people die who are church members who have nothing to do with the drug cartel I said, so what is this? Is this very discouraging to the church? And Brian looked at us and he said, no. This is the best thing that could have ever happened to the church. This is authenticating in the church. This is what the makes this is what makes the gospel real in the church, where eternity and death is ever present atmospherically in the church. Now, right now they're basically protected. They're not under, you know, present awful threats, but they live in a blood-filled environment where people get shot and killed. And he's saying, look, people aren't squabbling over fine details in the gospel. They're they're committed to the gospel together because they know all they have is Christ under persecution. That was encouraging to me. You know, as we look at a testimony like this, I want to encourage you, even though we don't necessarily live in this kind of bloodbath, wartime environment, it is a battle mindset for you to press on for Christ in this way. I want to encourage you, pursue Jesus Christ out of a passion for the resurrection. We're going to have to pick up on verses 15 and 16 
next week, but I want to encourage you. There's no neutral in the Christian life. Verses 15 and 16 basically say that you have mature Christians and you have immature Christians. And if you're an immature Christian, it's okay. It's just not okay to stay satisfied as an immature Christian. That's where 15 and 16 is going, okay? There's no neutral. You're either backsliding or you're going forward. And I want to encourage you, look, take a step today. It's not raw discipline that's going to get you to Christ. That's not what I'm talking about. It's a passion and desire to know Jesus because he saved you from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and will save you from the presence of sin in the future. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the word of God. I thank you that we can be in it together, and I praise you that you are growing us and willing to grow us in grace. Lord, it is only by your grace that we grow. So God, I pray that if there are people here, for instance, that don't know you, I pray that they would come to Christ. I pray that if people still need to make their testimony public, that they would in the waters of baptism. I pray, Lord, that people would take the challenge to know you intimately and not be satisfied with where they are. Lord, we want to be dissatisfied in a holy way together, spurring each other on to love and good deeds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. One